Chapter 3 I woke the next morning in my narrow bed, fully clothed, and a stark truth came to me. I was where no proper young lady should be. I needed only to close my eyes again to hear my father use those very words. But as I lay there, feeling the same tossing motion I felt when I, falling, when I was falling asleep, I took it to be that of a ship moored to the dock, I recollected Mr. Grummidge saying that the Seahawk was due to leave by the morning's first tide. It was not too late. I would ask to be put ashore, and in some fashion, I hardly cared how, I'd make my way back to the Barrington School. There, with Miss Weed, I would feel safe. She would make the necessary decisions. Having composed my mind, I set up with some of the some energy only to strike my head upon the low ceiling. Chastened, I got myself to the cabin floor. Now I discovered that my legs had become so weak, so rubbery, I all but sank to my knees. Still, my desperation was such that nothing could stop me. Holding on to, holding on to now one part of the wall, now another, I made my way out of the cabin into the dim, closed steerage and up the, st- up the steps to the waist of the ship, only to receive the shock of my life. Everywhere I looked, great canvas sails of gray, from mainsail to main royal, from flying jib to tri-sail, were bellied out. Beyond the sails stretched the sky itself, as blue as a baby's bluest eyes, while the greenish sea, crowned with lacy caps of foaming white, rushed by with unrelenting speed. The Seahawk had gone to sea. We must have left Liverpool hours before. As this realization took hold, the Seahawk, almost as if wishing to offer final proof, pitched and rolled. Nausea choked me. My head pounded. Weaker than ever, I turned around in search of support. For a fleeting but horrible second, I had the notion that I was alone on board. Then I realized that I was being watched with crude curiosity. Standing on the quarterdeck was a red-faced man whose slight stoop had a powerful broad shoulders, conspired to give the impression of perpetual suspicion, an effect heightened by dark, deep-set eyes, partially obscured by craggy eyebrows. Sir, I called weakly, where are we? We're coasting down the Irish Sea, Miss Doyle, replied the man, his voice raspy. I, I, I shouldn't be here, I managed. But the man, seemingly indifferent to my words, only turned with the slab of a hand reached for a bell set up at the head of the quarter deck in a kind of gallows. He pulled the clapper three times. Even as I tried to keep myself from sinking to the deck, nine men suddenly appeared in the ship's waist, from above as well as below, fore as well as aft. All wore the distinctive sailor's garb of canvas breeches and shirts. A few had boots, while some had no shoes at all. One or two wore tar-covered hats, others caps of red cloth. Two had beards. One man had long hair and a ring in his left ear. Their faces were dark from sun and tar. They were, in all, a sorry group of men as I had ever seen, glum in expression, defeated in posture, with no character in any eye save sullenness. They were like men recruited from the doormat of hell. 
I did recognize the sailor who had given me the warning the night before, but he paid no attention to me. And when I looked for the man who called himself Zachariah, I finally found him peering out from beneath the forecastle deck, no more concerned with me than the others. They were all looking elsewhere. I shifted to follow their gaze. The broad-shouldered men had been joined by another. Just to see him made my heart leap joyously with recognition and relief. From his fine coat, from his tall beaver hat, from his glossy black boots, from his clean chiseled countenance, from the dignified way he carried himself, I knew at once, without having to be told, that this must be Captain Jaggery. And he, I saw it in a glance, was a gentleman, the kind of man I was used to, a man to be trusted, in short, a man whom I could talk and upon whom I could rep- re- and upon whom I could rely. But before I composed myself to approach, Captain Jaggery turned to the man who had rung the bell, and I heard him say, "Mr. Hollybrass, we are short one." Mr. Hollybrass, I was soon to discover that he was the first mate, looked scornfully at the assembled men below. Then he said, The second mate did as best he could, sir. No one else could be gotten to sign articles, not for anything. The captain frowned. Then he said, The others will have to take up the slack. I'll not have any less. Have the men give their names. Hollybrass nodded curtly, then took a step forward and addressed the assembled crew. Give your names, he barked. One by one, the sailors shuffled forward a step, lifted their heads, doffed their caps, and spoke their names, but slumped into broken postures again once they returned to the line. Dillingham, Grimes, Morgan, Barlow, Folly, Ewing, Fisk, Johnson, Zachariah. When they had done, Hollybrass said, Your crew, Captain Jaggery. At first the captain said nothing. He merely studied the men with a look of contempt, an attitude that, because I shared it, made me respect him even more. Who is the second mate? I heard him ask. Mr. Keach, sir, he's at the wheel. Ah, yes, the captain returned. Mr. Keach, I might have guessed. He studied the line of sailors, smiled sardonically, and said, but where then is Mr. Cranick? Sir, Holly Brass said, clearly puzzled. Cranick. I don't know the name, sir. Now there's an unlooked for blessing, the captain said, his manners nonetheless courtly. All this was said loudly enough for the crew and me to hear. Captain Jaggery now took a step forward. Well then, he said in a clear, firm voice, it's a pleasure to see you all again. I take it kindly that you've signed on with me. Indeed, I suspect we know each other well enough to each understand what's due the other. That makes it easy. His confident tone was tonic to me. I felt myself gain strength. I have no desire to speak to any of you again, the captain continued. Mr. Hollybrass here, at first mate, shall be my voice. So too, Mr. Keach is my second mate. Separation makes for an honest crew. An honest crew makes a fair voyage. A fair voyage brings profit, and profit, my good gentleman, doth turn the world. But, Jaggery continued, his voice rising with the wind, I give warning. 
He leaned forward over the rail, much as I'd seen teachers lean toward unruly students. If you give me less, one finger less, than the particulars of the articles you have signed, I shall take my due. Make no mistake, I will. You know I mean what I say, don't you? No, we shall have no democracy here, no parliaments, no congressmen. There's but one master on this ship, and that is me. So saying, he turned his fist. So saying, he turned to his first mate. Mr. Hollybrass? Sir? An extra issue of rum as a gesture of goodwill toward a pleasant, quick passage. Let it be understood that I know the old saying, no ship sails the same sea twice. Very good, sir. You may dismiss them, the captain said. Dismissed, echoed the first mate. For a moment, no one moved. The captain continued to look steadily at the men. Then slowly, but with great deliberation, he turned his back upon them. Dismissed, Hollybrass said again. After the crew had gone, he murmured some words to Captain Jaggery. The two shook hands, and the first mate went below. Now the captain was alone at the quarterdeck. Glancing upward on the sails from time to time, he began to pace back and forth in almost leisurely fashion, hands clasped behind his back. A study in deep thought. I, meanwhile, still clung to the rail, braced against the heaving ship. But I had new hope. I had not been abandoned. My perception of Captain Jaggery made me certain that my world was regained. Summoning such strength and courage as was left in me, I mounted the steps to the quarterdeck. When I reached the top, the captain was moving away from me. Grateful for the momentary reprieve, I stood where I was, fighting the nausea I felt, gathering all of my womanly arts so as present my so as to present myself in the most agreeable fashion, making sure my hair, my best asset, felt just so, despite the breeze, to my lower back. At last he turned. For a moment, his severe eyes rested on me, and then he smiled. It was such a kind, good-natured smile that my heart nearly melted. I felt I would, I think I did, shed tears of gratitude. Ah, he said with unimpeachable refinement, Miss Doyle, our young lady passenger. He lifted his tall hat in formal salutation. Captain Andrew, Jaggery, at your service, he bowed. I took a wobbly step in his direction and despite my weakness turned to curtsy. Please, sir, I whispered in my most modest ladylike way. My father would not want me here on the ship And in this company, I must go back to Liverpool, to Miss Weed. Captain Jaggery smiled brilliantly, then laughed. A manly laugh. Return to Liverpool, Miss Doyle, he said. Out of the question. Time, as they say, is money. And nowhere is this truer than aboard a ship. We are well off and we shall continue on. God willing, we shall touch no land but welcome ports. I'm sorry you have such rude company. I know you are used to better. It could not be helped. But in a month, no more than two, we shall have you safe in Providence. No worse off but for a little salt in that pretty hair of yours. In the meanwhile, I promise that while you're well, for all I can see by your pallor, that you have a touch of seasickness. I'll have you in my quarters for tea. We shall be friends, you and I. Sir, I shouldn't be here. 
Miss Doyle, you have my word on it. No harm shall come your way. Besides, it's said a pretty child, a pretty woman, keeps the crew in a civilized state, and this crew could do with some of that. I feel so ill, sir, I said. That's only to be expected, Miss Doyle. In a few days it will pass. Now you will excuse me. Duty calls. Turning, he made his way to the stern where the second mate stood at the wheel. Checked by his courteous but complete dismissal of my request, and feeling even weaker than before, I somehow made my way back to the cabin. I did manage to crawl into bed, and once there I must have fallen into some kind of swoon. In any case, I remained there, too ill, too weak to do anything, certain I'd never rise again. Now and again, I would feel a rough-skinned but gentle hand beneath my head. I would open my eyes, and there was Zachariah's ancient black face close by, murmuring soft, comforting sounds, spooning warm gruel or tea into my mouth. I didn't know which, as if I were some sort of baby. Indeed, I was a baby. And from time to time, the face of Captain Jaggery loomed large, too, a welcome and tender gift of sympathy. Indeed, I believed it was the sight of him more than anything else that sustained me, for I suffered real and terrible stomach pains and dreadful headaches. Even my dreams were haunted by ghastly visions. So real were they that once I started up and found Zachariah's dirk in my hand. I must have plucked it from beneath my mattress and was brandishing it against some imagined evil. I heard a sound. I looked across the cabin. A rat was sitting on my journal, nibbling its spine. Horrified, I flung the dirk at it, then buried my head in the coverlet, burst into tears, and cried myself to sleep again. This bad time passed. At length, I was able to sleep in peace. How long I slept, I'm not sure. But then, at last, I truly awoke. <laughs>